Uh, the weekend and plenty to hear from your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Producer even came up to me afterwards and said, are you okay? And I bluffed it off. Yes, yes, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Yeah, I'm fine. And then she shut the door and I just crumpled and I thought, I'm not fine. What is wrong with me? I didn't even know that perimenopause was a word. Plus foster carers are the backbone of the foster care system and we're being treated appallingly. He's a lot more candid with his friends about, you know, his illicit activities and he quoted being interested in hedonistic pleasures and to my parents it was much more, uh, you know, much much more buttoned up, but, but I was able to piece together a story of his life. And we'll start with TV presenter Davina McCall talking to Claire Byrne about her new best-selling book on the menopause. Davina, first of all, congratulations on the success of the book. I was checking all the bestseller lists this morning. It's flying for you. Oh, thanks, Claire. No, I'm really, I mean, I can't quite believe it. And on top of all of that, it's a book about the menopause. How brilliant is that? (laughs) But you know, I don't know. (laughs) I know you say that people come and talk to you about the menopause all the time, which is what we would expect because you've been starting these conversations. But Mm. I think most of us find now that women are much more willing, aren't they, to to talk Mm. about the menopause. It's been a real shift over the last one, two years. Mm, I mean, I think we all... Well, I mean, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I can speak for myself when I say that I just found it an incredibly lonely place. I, I didn't feel able to speak to anybody about it because I felt so much shame around it. And I felt shame around the fact that I wasn't coping very well. I felt shame around the fact that um, I couldn't do my job anymore. Um, I felt shame around the fact that I was behaving badly around my children. So sort of sometimes I'd be crying or sometimes I'd be shouting and I was just all over the place, but I just didn't feel like I could talk to anybody about it because I feel like I felt like they would judge me for wanting wanting a way out. You know, mm. how how can I help myself? Yeah. So I think there's there's a lot less shame wrapped up in it now, which is a good thing. That story you tell at the beginning of the book about presenting a television show and mm. just feeling really off and not being able to see mm. the autocue, that must have been quite mm. frightening. Well, I mean, uh, uh, frightening because it was a live TV program and and scary. My father just recently had um, an Alzheimer's um, diagnosis and I was there looking at Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. He was a household name. I've grown up with him all my life. I'd literally said his name sort of two minutes before and I was looking at him and I was thinking, oh my gosh, I've just said your name and I cannot for the life of me remember what it was. Le Mm, the, and then I just sort of was kind of pointing going so you you like you know just trying to kind of wing my way through it but the producer even came up to me afterwards and said are you okay and I bluffed it off yes yes I'm fine don't worry about me yeah I'm fine and then she shut the door and I just crumpled and I thought I'm not fine what is wrong with me I didn't even know that perimenopause was a word I had no idea because my parents stuffed it and my mum toughed it out um, all my family were toughing it out. None of us were talking to each other. And I think the fear, um, when you don't know what's happening to you, makes everything that ha- is happening to you much worse. So all of your symptoms increase when you're frightened. If you know what it is, then you can get a handle on it 
and start dealing well, with that's, it. Well, that's the key point, isn't it? And, and I know you said that you felt, oh my gosh, maybe I have something like Alzheimer's or some degenerative condition. And I was talking to a friend of mine who said that at one stage before she went and, and got her HRT and all of her different help, that she was trying to think of the word radio and she kept saying radiator to a client of hers thinking, I can, if I can't find the word for radio when I, when it, when, and I keep saying ra- radiator, I need to not be doing my job. Like That's a very scary place to be. And I think the sad thing is I was at a, 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 an amazing event yesterday for women by women and we were just discussing how it, this happens to us at an age where we've all been doing our jobs for quite a long time and we love our jobs because we've got really good at our jobs and suddenly here comes something that makes us feel unsure of ourselves, a bit worried, we're making mistakes which isn't like us, maybe we might even be trying to cover up the mistakes not talking to people because it ages us and it makes us think, or maybe they'll get rid of us um, because we feel disposable of, you know. And what's a shame is that that is a massive drain on the economy because if you lose a load, you know, 51% of us are, are women, if you lose all of those women who have spent all of those years in that career, who have all of that knowledge and help that you could mentor somebody younger with, that's a huge loss. And Claire asked Davina about hormone replacement therapy. You were reluctant to start taking HRT and then yeah. you were reluctant to tell your friends tell you were anyone. taking. Yeah. Why was, <laughs> explain that to me. Yeah, but well, I didn't want to take HRT because I felt in some way that I was going to fail. That I was failing at being a woman, that this was the most natural process in life. I'd had my babies at home. I had um, natural childbirth. And I'm not a kind of... Um, you know, um, I don't know, complete hippie or anything, but I, I do like to try and not put too many drugs in my body. Like I like to try and be natural. And I felt like HRT was a drug and that I was in some way chasing youth and I was didn't want to do that. And I wanted to tough it out like all those other amazing women before me. And then I just thought, you know what, I can't, I just can't do it anymore. And I, I went to try and get HRT. I was told by my GP that I was probably too young. I had hypothyroidism, which I now know makes you come into menopause early, perimenopause early. So I, um, so I went privately, which I'm sad about, you know. But anyway, I did, and they said, no, you're definitely perimenopausal, and put me on HRT. And within two weeks, I had to get, I had to play around with the progesterone a bit. It's not an instant fix by any means, and um, it's important to say that HRT doesn't suit everybody. But um, and there are so many different combinations that sometimes it it can take up to a year to get the right combination to make you feel fabulous and get rid of your symptoms. Mm-hmm. I think that's but mine. Mine mine alleviated quite quickly, and I couldn't believe it. I didn't tell my friends because I thought they'd judge me. Mm-hmm. And did they? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's been funny is that they they did a they did the opposite you know they said hey we're sad that you haven't told us how you're feeling are you okay um like what's it like um tell us everything and then I was like oh this is positive why did I not do this before yeah I think this is the scary thing is is what you said Mm -hmm. there about you know it doesn't suit everybody it's not instant Mm -hmm. you've got to get Mm -hmm. it right that means you've got to meet the right medical professional Mm -hmm. who's going to take the time Mm -hmm. with you to to get you Mm -hmm. to the point where it is working Mm. I mean, I think there's a really good idea for doing, um, you know, you get post-mortems. 
I think when it comes to your menopause, why don't you do a pre-mortem? <laughs> why don't you, before you are going to become perimenopausal, so if you're in your 30s and you're thinking, okay, so it's going to hit me in my 40s, I'm going to go to my GPs now or the next time I go to my GP and I'm going to say, who specializes in women's health care at your surgery? Like, well, who's the person that knows about that stuff? There should be one person at every GP surgery that knows a bit more about women's health and the perimenopause and menopause than the other doctors. And it could be a practice nurse. It could be, it could be anybody, but there should be. And if there isn't, then you've got 10 years <laughs> to get one in there. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> and start campaigning maybe with other women at the surgery to try and get that to happen. A lot of the women in, in your book, they, they tell you about being dismissed by mm. GPs and they tell mm. you, perhaps more worryingly, that they've been prescribed medicine for depression. Yes, well, one in four women have been described, uh, prescribed antidepressants for menopause symptoms. And um, actually, in the NICE guidelines, which is the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, and these are the guidelines that the GPs follow, if a woman was to present with anxiety and depression, and she was 45 years old, and it was the first instance of depression that, you know, she hasn't struggled with it all her life. It's a new thing. Um, the GP is advised by the NICE guidelines to prescribe the woman HRT before he tries antidepressants because antidepressants will not work on, uh, on menopausal or perimenopausal anxiety and depression. Because uh, the only thing that helps us is hormones. Yeah. And Claire asked Davina about becoming a campaigner for menopause awareness. We know you as the presenter, you know, and your lovely smile on the masked singer or whatever it is you're doing. How has this been for you, this this sort of pivot into listening to people's stories and, and hearing about the people who are ignored by GPs, perhaps, or prescribed the wrong thing? What has that been like? Um, well, firstly, I feel like um, we all, we all have kind of purpose in life as women. And I feel sometimes, you know, in, in my youth, I felt like my purpose in life as a woman was to be a mother. Like I, I always had that in me. I know lots of women don't have that, but I absolutely did from like five years old. And after I'd had my children and as I headed into the perimenopause, I felt like I lost my purpose. But actually, we then become an important army of women that need to support each other and we need to lift each other up and we need to hold each other because it can be, you know, for 75% of women, we suffer symptoms, but for 25% of women who are perimenopausal, they can be suicidal and we need to support each other and make sure that no one feels alone or invisible or lost or unheard. And we're in it together, but it has given me a real sense of purpose a new it purpose. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I was looking back, I was watching a documentary about uh, Big Brother, I think, some time ago. Mm-hmm. And at mm-hmm. one point you're walking down, you know, you know, when the when they're coming out, when you when somebody's being mm-hmm. evicted and you're heavily pregnant. And that I think you had all oh, of yeah. your children, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I did. all of them on Big Brother, practically. Yeah. I, mean, that, I, I just look at that and I go, how did you do that? Yeah, that was mad. I mean, all my babies are born in September because I was like, I am not going to not present Big Brother. No one else gets to present that show apart from me. <laughs> so my poor, my poor husband, he was like, I was like, okay, go now. And unbelievably, you know, I got pregnant every time when I desired and had a baby in September so I could present the show all summer 
and then take time off to have a baby and then come back to the show the next year. Oh, I mean, you talk about menopause being tough, but that's really hard going. Yeah, it was it was fun, though. I mean, it's funny. I'm just sat here looking at all my big mother T-shirts. I've got them all framed. Um, so it's quite funny. Uh, yeah, Jen, it, was, it was an amazing time of my life. Davina McCall from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Liveline in the afternoon, continuing the conversation about the budget and foster families. I don't think it's fair to say a sleeping giant has been awoken by the uh, words that were not said in the budget. And I'm talking about foster uh, families. According to Tusla, there are 5,450 children in foster care in Ireland at the moment and 4,124 foster carers under the uh, ages of uh, Tusla. So they're a relatively small group, but they're a group, I think, that feel they have been ignored. And such is the uh, number of calls that we've been getting since the budget that what we're going to do uh, today is to to help people and, and we don't want to discourage people because all the calls are heartfelt. Uh, we have a WhatsApp voice message line. Very simple. If you have WhatsApp, you just record a voice message uh, on your phone. Uh, keep it to a minute or so, if you would, please. Uh, well, whatever you feel is necessary, but you understand. Here's two examples in the last few minutes. Hello, Joe. I have fostered for almost 10 years. And in my experience, I would not recommend anyone to become foster care. It's not because of the vulnerable children who have... It's because of the broken system uh, that your listeners have spoken to over the past few days. We have teenage children here, teenage birth children also, but there's a complete lack of any meaningful, any empathy or any meaningful engagement from Tusla or from the agencies when a carer requests enhanced payments. And we've deeply traumatised children and lots of carers take in deeply, deeply traumatised children and they have difficulty regulating. There's a real fear among carers that the children could be removed um, if you continuously advocate for them. Um, like we, we in our home, we've had three TVs broken since Christmas. We've constant damage to our home over the years. My question is, who funds this? Who supports us with this? I'd love someone to answer these questions. Hi Joe, I'm a foster carer for many years and I'm just delighted that you're having this conversation, that you're shining a light on foster carers and what we do. Um, to read the, the hatred and the vitriol and um, the horrible comments online about how money grabbing we are and how you know we're only in it for the money is ridiculous. I mean, you, there are much, much easier jobs out there. Uh, you know, that aren't 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, We're dealing with traumatised children who will hopefully overcome this trauma with lots and lots of love and attention and care. And they want for nothing. I, I, everything I do, I do for my children. Um, So, you know, walk a mile in my shoes before you want to judge me. I know I'm a good person. I know that what I'm doing for these children is changing their lives, the life that they have compared to the life that they would have had or could have if they ended up in residential care, which, can I say, would cost the state like €6,000 a week. Us foster carers are the backbone of the foster care system and we're being treated 
appallingly. We have been overlooked, as you say, for near on 20 years now. And I'm just, as I say, delighted that you're shining the light. Foster parents there. Then Siobhan read aloud her email to the live line. None of us can stand in judgment over others. We often have no idea what others have been through. Rich or poor, it makes no difference. Most of us would crumble under the weight of the burden that these children and their families suffer. All families need help, some more than others. The help they are offered is not always either what they need or what they want. But one way or another, children need safety, security, love and care. And they need it while they are still children. They cannot wait until we all have our act together to supply it. So let's find that help. We are all victims of a system that doesn't work. Children, mothers, fathers, foster parents, social workers, all forced through a dysfunctional system. So let's fix that system. Parents hit hard times, often through no fault of their own. Children suffer as a result. That's a simple fact. They often suffer in ways that many can't even begin to comprehend. The system we have is totally inadequate for everyone. It's inadequate for children, for parents, for foster families, for social workers, for support workers, for all services. So let's fix the system. In every walk of life, we have people who struggle at their job, who make bad choices, who may be ill-informed or who don't get it right. In every walk of life, this is the case. So let's help those people understand better so we can get it right the next time. The problem is the system, not the people in it. We can only fix it by listening to each other by hearing each other, by working together and each other for future generations. So let's fix it. While we waste our time squabbling and scratching at each other, knocking each other down and begrudging each other help, our government is happy to sit back and watch that happen because it takes all of our focus off of them. Yet they are the ones holding the reins and steering us into organised chaos. The government needs to answer why. Why, given the supposed boom, we've been through. Are our children's lives still in turmoil? Why are children and parents still living in poverty? Why are there not enough supports where they are needed? Why is the health service in a mess? They are the ones whom you need to pose all these questions to. They are the ones who can action change, who can fund services, who can reduce poverty and create a more equal society. So let's ask them. And we have, we, we have, we have asked them, Sean. But stay, stay with us. I want to go to Sharon. Again, our numbers are five one double five one. Text Joe at rt.ie and that WhatsApp voice message number zero eight seven one eight four three seven zero nine. Sharon, good afternoon. You entered foster care at the age of nine, and uh, you went through the whole system, which means until eighteen. Sharon, your point, please. Yes, so um, I entered at the age of nine and I entered in with my two younger siblings. The three of us were put in a foster family um, together, which we were very um, lucky to have that opportunity to be placed together because a lot of children get split up. Um, My foster parents, their family went from a family of four to a family of seven, literally overnight. Um, the, The support from the social workers, the turnover of staff, social workers is there's no consistency for the children and there's no consistency for the families and when you have no consistency you're going to have children let down you're going to have families let down and you're going to the system that that vicious cycle is just going to continue and continue I will always say it was not social workers it was not Tufla it was not the government that got me to where I am today it was my foster family it was my two parents 
that, you know, mm-hmm. um, gave up work, gave up, um, you know, their extra, you know, activities that they that they would do for themselves yeah. to actually be there to look after us, to bring us to multiple accesses a week, multiple appointments a week, health appointments, um, therapy, yeah. like the, the amount of effort and energy that foster parents put into looking after us children who are coming um, with so much trauma um, is, is immense, but yeah. yet there's no support behind them. Like social workers turn off their phones by six o'clock. Where do they go? If a child has a, has a you know, a, a breakdown or mm-hmm. a child is at risk or, or in yeah. some way or another towards themselves or towards someone else, where do they go? Their only option is to present an A&E or to present to the guards. And no fa- no family wants to present to the guards because that is what we should have an on-call system for. It, for from social workers, they should be on-call for families for that support. And Sharon, when when you were in foster care and you said there was a high turnover of social workers, would you yeah. have would you would you go through a series of new interviews with new social workers to tell yeah, them? Yeah, absolutely. Every single social worker that would come into the home, I would sit there and I would relay my story again and again and again, and that's re-traumatizing in itself. Yeah. I mean, I could have gone, you know, I go to therapy and I would think, you know, I'm doing all this work on myself, and then I've got another social worker that's going to come in and say, okay, tell me your story. You know, after two years of working on, you know, my trauma and yeah, my experience. Yeah, moving on, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it, that's not good enough. It's not good enough The files aren't kept up to date, that families, you know, you could be left without months and months without seeing your social worker or even hearing from them when you call the phone is off. You know, and it could be serious moments. You know, I had I, I had quite a, a traumatic upbringing, so that left me with a lot of trauma to yeah. have to deal with. And yeah. you know, my family, my foster parents didn't know who to turn to. You know, there was no support there for them to help me through it, um, and it was really like walking in the dark for them. That's Sharon on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, British Prime Minister Liz Truss and the fallout of that mini-budget. The British Prime Minister Liz Truss will hold emergency talks with the head of Britain's independent fiscal watchdog after failing to dampen panic in the financial markets or shore up support from Tory MPs on her radical economic plan. In a highly unusual move, the Prime Minister will meet the Office for Budget Responsibility today along with her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng before being presented with a first draft of its full fiscal forecast next week. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by Cindy Yu, who's broadcast editor with The Spectator. Cindy, thank you for taking our call today. How significant do you think it is that Liz Truss will be at this meeting today with the Office for Budget Responsibility? I think it's the first step of the Prime Minister realising that there is a problem. Now, that sounds a bit ridiculous after the seven days that we've had where the UK has essentially seen an economic meltdown um, for financial institutions as well as normal consumers and homeowners. But (laughs) those close to her were saying that actually earlier in the week she didn't really think there was a problem, that the markets would calm down, that actually these were just the usual critics um, saying the usual things. But the first step to her recognising that there is a problem is this meeting with the OBR, because normally it should be the Chancellor, just the Chancellor, taking the meeting. Um, and I guess, you know, people will have to hope that 
The next step is for her to take further steps to reassure the market, having recognised the problem. Um, so it is, it is an important meeting. Well, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall in there because this office, <laughs> the, the, the uh, Office of Budget Responsibility, they, they're saying that they offered to assess the measures and the strategy that were, th- those measures that were announced that caused all the trouble last Friday, but that Liz Truss and Quasi Quartin said, no, thank you very much, we're OK, we'll, we're happy to go ahead here. It looks as though there's a bit of a backtrack happening now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this was something that they said during the leadership contest. You know, Liz Truss always said, because of the emergency relief we needed on energy, uh, the OBR can't give us an assessment uh, fast enough because it normally takes eight to ten weeks. And so we can't delay our action uh, in order to do that. Um, and so that's the way they, they played it at the time. And, but the OBR did say at the time as well, you know, we can give you a kind of, kind of mini assessment. We can give you something to work with. Uh, but, but they rejected that. Now, of course, Friday's uh, fiscal event wasn't just about energy. It was about much, much more than that, um, which really kind of, again, raises the question of the need for an OBR forecast. As I say, now the government is belatedly realising that they need this kind of thing to reassure the market. Um, and we see less trust kind of, yeah, as you say, backtracking on that. Bear in mind that the OBR was set up by George Osborne in order to hold this kind of um, supervisory position over government spending. And this government has essentially so far said, no, 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 we don't need your scrutiny. Mm-hmm. On the politics of this, uh, Cindy, the radio interviews that Liz Truss did yesterday, and I'm sure people will be aware there was a round of local radio interviews on uh, BBC stations around the country. I mean, the reviews of those, the response to them, fairly scathing. We played a cl- couple of clips here where there were long pauses when she didn't know about local uh, issues. There were some awkward exchanges. What has been the general response? How would you characterise it? Well, she has kind of uh, buried, uh, bunkered down really since since last Friday until yesterday's broadcast round. Um, she wasn't really making statements when Quasi Quartin, well, when the Treasury and the Bank of England made a joint statement early in the week, uh, there were reports that actually Liz Truss opposed that statement, that he, she didn't think her Chancellor should have said anything at all and really had to be kind of brought around to that. A few days later, she then goes on the broadcast round herself, but saying essentially the same things. No, there was nothing new. And if anything, it kind of um, cemented this idea that she was just going to keep going, that the lady's not returning, all this sort of stuff. The long, awkward pauses, I think, goes to show basically that she wasn't prepared for the kind of tough questioning that a lot of these angry local um, presenters with angry local listeners uh, were, were, were putting up to her on all sorts of things. It wasn't just on energy, it was on mortgages, it was on fracking, um, all sorts of, it was on building houses. And she really should have had better answers for that to avoid those long pauses. Yeah, well, if you're going to go on local radio, you need to lo- know what the local issues are. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that would, you would imagine, be uh, 101 type stuff. And then, of course, we have this poll, the YouGov poll, putting Labour 33 points ahead of the Tories. Now, that is a very awkward place for her to be, to put it mildly, going into the Conservative Party conference this weekend. That's putting it very, very mildly. This is um, at utterly catastrophic, completely historical lead for Labour. And bearing in mind that the poll that YouGov did over the weekend um, showed that Labour was 18 point, uh, 17 points ahead. And that already was a huge 
uh, lead ahead. And now it's 33, and people have kind of translated that to election maps. So if an election were held today, the Tories probably would only have three seats, completely wiped out by a massive Labour majority. Obviously, they're two years to go into the next election, so they've got some breathing space. But if you're a Conservative MP looking at this now, you're worried about your seat. And going into Conservative Party conference, you know, you either might not go, which is what a lot of Rishi Sunak supporters, Rishi Sunak himself, are not going. Um, or you're going to go and you're really going to be complaining and trying to think, how do we turn this around? Because this is really panic stations now. Cindy Yu of The Spectator there. Then later, business journalist Adam McGuire was talking to Claire about how this fall in sterling might affect the Irish consumer. So we're looking at the turmoil happening over there, but yeah. we can't expect that it's not going to affect us here. No, no, it, it is going to have a huge effect, direct and indirect, uh, and probably the most direct is is the currencies, as you say, sterling falling uh, against the dollar and against the euro as well. And, uh, and that has an impact on on business it has an impact on consumers as well. Okay, so let's start with sterling then and explain to us what the situation is there. Yeah, so the, the euro has been getting stronger against the pound for about five months now. So it's about seven or eight percent stronger than it was back in mid-April. Shifted back again a little this morning. So these things are always in flux. But what's happening is, is, is markets are increasingly worried, as you say, against this, the, about the state of the UK economy. Inflation is a lot worse there. Um, Brexit stifling the ability to recover the pandemic and that huge amount of money that's being borrowed for those tax cuts. Questions about how that's going to be funded. In real terms, terms now that the dip equates to about six pence or so more per euro. So it's not exactly earth shattering, but bear in mind that on top of this recent shift, the euro has already been in a fairly strong position against sterling. Uh, you know, when, when the euro first launched about 22 years ago, it bought you about 70 pence. Now it's closer to 90 pence. And that is because of Brexit. After Brexit, if you look on the chart, sterling just crashed against the euro and it never fully recovered. It bounced back a little bit, but any ground that it regained, it's, it's lost again now in the last few All months. All right. So then let's talk about what that means for consumers here? Well, as I said, it, it, it can be a positive thing and a negative thing depending on your situation, depending on what you're doing. So the, the thing to remember in all of this is that a stronger currency, if a currency is stronger against the euro, it's more expensive. If it's weaker, it's it's cheaper. So sterling, as I say, about 7% cheaper against the euro now over the last few months. And so that essentially means British goods and services are 7% cheaper than they were five or six months ago. In, in real terms, as I said, it's a couple of cents in the difference. So if we go back to our cross-border shopping basket from a couple of weeks ago, you're talking about two euro cheaper now than it was uh, maybe back if you're buying the same thing back in April. Not a huge amount of money. But of course, the bigger the purchase, the bigger the difference is going to be. So if you look at the new iPhone, the entry level model uh, in Ireland costs you €1,029. Based on the April exchange rate, it would be pretty much the same in sterling, about three or four euro in the difference. But if you take the current exchange rate, the same phone would cost you €949 Euro if you bought it in the UK. So about €80 Euro cheaper. Now, not to be sniffed at, maybe not quite enough to convince someone to go up to Belfast to buy it rather than getting it in Dublin, but, but still a significant enough difference. Depends on where you're travelling from. You could spend the that's, €80 Euro on, the, on the fuel for the exactly, car. Exactly, yeah. So are you saying then that that's probably not enough to have a huge impact on consumers here? Maybe not just yet. And, and it, does, it does mean that things are slightly cheap from the UK, but of course other factors get in the way when it comes to the UK now. So in previous times, you might have taken advantage of this by buying from a British website, say. But of course, nowadays you have Brexit tariffs, you have customs charges that apply when you get bring something in from the UK. So you're probably not going to gain, even if the price is slightly cheaper. 
but the dynamic could shift quite quickly, especially if some predictions come true. Larry Summers, who's a former US Treasury Secretary, he thinks sterling could ultimately reach parity with the euro. Uh, so one euro buying you one pound. And that could have a huge impact on, on the attractiveness of cross-border purchases. That iPhone I mentioned would suddenly be 180 euro cheaper in Belfast than in Dublin. So that's a significant difference. The, the, the cost of those items in the shopping basket, as you remember, outside of alcohol, it roughly balanced out. Yeah. But if it was one to one, everything would be cheaper in Newry. And so that makes a big difference in terms of people's shopping habits. And the big one for Irish consumers would be the fact that the trip to the UK would suddenly become more expensive. Your flight would probably still be in Euro, but if you think about if your hotel, your meals, your entertainment, you know, if you're going to a gig or something like that, if everything was suddenly 15% cheaper, that all adds up to a significant saving when you put it all together. Yeah, but it would make a difference, all right. So for businesses then, weaker sterling, how does that impact businesses? It's probably not really good news. It, it, it might mean that uh, the imports are a bit cheaper from the UK, but of course, again, uh, you know, Brexit means that all these charges are applied, so maybe you're not really making any kind of saving. And even where it does make sense now for a company to buy from the UK because sterling is cheaper, it could be bad news for an Irish producer because it could be displacing their sales so someone buys from the UK instead of buying from Ireland. And those Irish producers might be hit on the double because they're now having a harder time selling to the UK because the reverse of what we're talking about is true for them. Suddenly, for UK customers buying Irish goods, things have gotten 7-8% more uh, more expensive. Uh, the same applies for a, a, for a consumer. An Irish person going on a weekend to the UK might find it's a little bit cheaper, but a British resident who's thinking of travelling to Ireland is now seeing everything is slightly more expensive. You know, their, their flights are more expensive, their hotel, their meals. So they might spend a little bit less when they're here or they could put the trip off altogether if it, if it you know, comes, it becomes a little bit more expensive. And again, for the Irish economy, the fact that it's cheaper for Irish people to go to the UK is bad news because they might decide to go to London rather than going to Limerick, which means their, their money is being spent somewhere else rather than the domestic economy. So potentially bad news. And for shopping as well, of course, if you're going to go to Newry rather than uh, Dundalk to do your Christmas shopping, if it's 15, 10% cheaper, that's going to make yeah, a big impact. Could be a tough run up to Christmas for the, the traders in the Republic who are just on the border, you know, where we exactly. will really and, yeah, have an and impact. And the worse sterling gets, the, the, the more compelling going across the border is going to be for shoppers. But as Adam points out, the euro is getting weaker against the dollar, which might be good news for tourism. So the, the shift between, and this is really we're in this really strange place we're getting stronger against sterling but weaker against the dollar and it's been far more pronounced against the dollar uh, it's been about a 14% shift compared to March in real terms you're talking about 16 cent less now for your euro than you were six months ago it's essentially happening because there's fears about a recession in the eurozone uh, you know the energy crisis and so on uh, traders tend to fall back on the dollar as a safe haven anyway so if they're at all concerned about what's going on they tend to shift their money towards the dollar but it means that all those issues I mentioned about what's cropping up for, for business, uh, British businesses and consumers seeing Irish goods now more expensive. The same is happening for us in terms of the US. If we're buying anything from the US, it's now going to be a lot more expensive, essentially 14%. So it's just much to, to go back on that, the markets are looking at the, the global situation and they're seeing that the EU is just more vulnerable to fluctuations happening as a result of the war in Ukraine. But essentially, it's, yeah. I mean, there's a, a, yeah because of the energy crisis and, and it, it essentially a fear that there's a lot of uncertainty around what's going to happen in terms of yeah. energy over the winter, fears of, of the Eurozone going into a recession and so the safe haven is to go back to the US and, and essentially to the dollar as well and it, it means that it's, it's gone up by about 14% since since March so since the start mm-hmm. of the of the, the war in Ukraine really um, and it just means that essentially US prices have gone up by 14% for us without anything actually for us, changing but we might have more Americans coming to see us here well this is the, the upside of, of things that an American tourist coming to Ireland suddenly is getting more bang for their buck and surprisingly people might be surprised with this Americans already see Ireland as good value for money so if things are now 14% cheaper on top of what they think is good value 
value for money, then they're, they're, they may be more inclined to come. And it's very important at this time of year because they might be looking to do their booking for next summer and making their plans. And we know as well, while there are fewer American tourists coming to Ireland than, say, British, they're much more important because they stay for a lot longer. They tend to stay for weeks rather than a weekend. They tend to travel around the country. They don't just go to Dublin. They, they travel all around and they spend a lot more money while they're here as well. So suddenly now every dollar they spend is going that little bit further for them uh, while they're here and it's worth a little bit more to us as well. Okay. So potentially um, good news for for the economy. But on the downside then when it comes to the price of, of commodities. Yeah, this is about well if you're going if you're going to the US it's going to be more expensive for you. Yeah, but your, also, shopping your shopping trip. Once you've trip. paid for your gas and electricity and you've money over to go shopping to <laughs> if America. You've anything left, yeah, you won't be going over with the empty suitcases <laughs> like you would have done, you know, in seven eight. But yeah the big thing is commodities for us. Everything like oil is priced in dollar. So if it's getting if we're getting weaker against the dollar, it means oil is getting more expensive. And if you actually look on the on, on markets, oil has come off its highs after the, the, the start of the war in Ukraine it's not quite back to normal but it it's come down by about 30 odd percent on the peak now we have seen the, the price of the pump come back but not by that much and it's because the dollar is getting stronger against us so even though the price of oil is technically cheaper we're still spending more for it because the dollar is, is, is that much stronger okay. Adam Maguire from Today with Claire Byrne And on the Ryan Tipperty show, a family mystery unravels. Peter McDowell was talking about his documentary Jimmy in Saigon, which will be shown at the Gaze Film Festival. And Peter had just arrived in the country from his home in America. I'm originally from Illinois, which is yeah the state that Chicago is in. I'm from about two and a half hours south of Chicago, but I live in Los Angeles well, now. Good so. on you for, for uh, getting from the plane to yeah. the cab to the station. Yeah. All in good time. Appreciate it very much. And you're in town because you've come with uh, essentially under your arm a documentary that is as I would describe it as a labor of love. How long did it take you to put this together? It took me 12 years to make this film. <laughs> okay. And the film that we're going to talk about today, Jimmy in Saigon. Uh, the clues are one is a brother, the other is a city, <clears throat> and the rest will follow is is, is why, why we're here to talk about. Yeah. It. I'm going to talk to you beginning with um to talk about family because yeah, at the start of your program, when you're wandering around with your camera, it you it's like it feels very invasive. Your family are obviously private, mm-hmm. and this is a really important part of your story: their privacy, their their dignity. With that, and here you come with this camera, and all generations going, "Jesus, Peter, like, give us a break! You know what are you doing, poking that thing around?" So you had to, before we get into the story itself, you had to build a trust with the keepers of that story's flame by having this camera in their life. Tell me about breaking that down and, and, and making it comfortable for people. Yeah, I mean, I think it it happened fairly quickly in the sense that I got my mom's blessing. Uh, my mom, who's currently 98 years old and uh, doing well. But uh, yeah, it was her, her firstborn child who died. You know, my eldest brother, I'm the youngest of six children. And he was the oldest and I didn't really know him. So she understood that I wanted to look for that um, that holy grail of finding information about him. There was a lot of mystery surrounding his death. And the other family members? Um, you know, I think they they took a little while, but I, they're all kind of on board now. And yeah. one of my, my I, so I have two living brothers and two sisters. And one of my brothers wrote the film soundtrack, wrote the music to the film. And yeah. so he and I have been working really closely. And my two sisters have seen it. And my other brother is probably going to see it at some point. Uh, how old were you uh, when Jimmy went to Saigon? Well, um, to Vietnam. Yeah, so I was born in '67, and he went to the army in I think '69, and went to Vietnam in 1970, and um, 
did a tour of duty in the army, came back to the United States, and then decided to return as a civilian to Saigon, which was very unusual at the time to return to a war zone like that. And the war zone was raging. The war was raging, and he came. He came back. He came back, and then he died suddenly and mysteriously a year later. Okay, and there's therein lies the rub. Um, let's talk about Jimmy. I mean, the photographs in the documentary, he just seems like a what I would call, and it's coming from me, for me, it sounds really odd, but he was, just looked like such a cool cat. Like his style, you yeah. know, it's all back in, by the way. I yeah. see a lot of Jimmys around these yeah, days. Yeah. He's a really interesting looking guy. Yeah, you know, I recently uh, was at a festival and I met a woman who who personally knew Andy Warhol and she had a portrait by Andy Warhol in her house. And, and after she saw the film, she's like, you know who would have really liked your brother? And I was like, who? And she's like, Andy Warhol. Wow. And I said, well, why do you say that? And she said, he had a really inter- your brother had a really interesting look and I think Andy yeah. Warhol would have liked it. Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can see why. Mm-hmm. So tell me about Jimmy uh, as a boy from what you know, because you were, there was quite an age gap, wasn't there, between you? 19 years. He yeah. was the oldest. He was 19 years older than me. Um, you know, born in 1948, we're a big Catholic family. We're actually an Irish Catholic family. It's so a shock with a name like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, he grew up in a kind of a, a little bit stifling, like conservative atmosphere in the 50s and 60s. My parents are, you know, not the most conservative, but, you know, it was this conservative time. And um, I think he found a certain freedom in Vietnam that he wasn't expecting. Um, and sometimes this happens to people. They have to go halfway across the world to start living a more authentic life. And can you tell us about his uh, his admission to the army and why why he joined the army? Well, you know, it's it's a little it you know he had a low lottery number, which means that he was pretty sure he was going to get drafted, mm-hmm. so he just went ahead and joined. Honestly, I think he kind of enjoyed the uh, rigor, the sort of discipline of the army, the structure, I guess is the word, because you know he had been in the, uh, in the university and he wasn't doing well. He was very smart, but he wasn't doing well in the university because people. You know, this is the counterculture revolution. People didn't want to be in school. Um, And ironically, I think he found some structure in the army that he enjoyed, but he was ready to go when he left and left the army and then just went right back to Vietnam. And Peter is trying to unravel some of the story of Jimmy's last years. There's two things that I do, two main things that I'm trying to discover you know, the, the festival that this film is at is the Gays Festival, which is the LGBTQ film festival in Dublin. Yes. And the film, you know, it isn't just it isn't just for or about gay people, but it has a gay theme in it in the sense that I'm a gay man. Mm-hmm. I came out to my family when I was 17. And many, many years later, my mom said, oh, I always wondered maybe if your brother Jimmy was gay. And I was like, wow, you took this long to tell that to me, you know, okay, why do you think that? And then she kind of backpedaled and was like, I don't know, maybe not, you know? So I thought, well, this, this planted a seed for me. So I was interested, you know, to know, kind of explore. He had a very mysterious personal life. We never knew about a girlfriend. And um, although he sort of portrayed a Vietnamese woman as his girlfriend, but there was some doubt about that. And um, and then the other was just the cause of his death. And um, there were a couple different causes and there was shame in my family. It was a lot of secrets and shame. Where where to go? Um, tell me about the cause of death, if you don't mind. Can we talk a bit about that as much yeah. as you can say? Yeah, yeah. Well, so my parents got a telegram that uh, said that he had died of heroin abuse um, as a result of uh, 
or combined with septicemia, which is blood poisoning. I didn't know that until I was 18 years old. I was told that he died of a tropical disease, and that's all I knew. But then when I was 18, I was having a conversation with my sister because another one of my brothers is having some substance abuse issues, and she said, I've already had one brother die of drugs. I don't want another one. And I was like, what are you talking about? So then I learned. I learned about the telegram. It took me until my mid forties, mid late forties to actually find the telegram that was locked away in a basement, in a cabinet in our basement. My mom had lost the key. And I said, how am I going to get that telegram out? And she said, do whatever you need to, to get it out. And I grabbed a hammer and I broke open the (laughs) filing cabinet and found this telegram that, you know, that had been locked away for 40 years. It was incredible. The telegram was a metaphor, wasn't it? It was, it was, you know, and and in a sense, the cause of death doesn't really matter. I mean, at a certain point in the film, we go into that a little bit more. But for me, when somebody dies young, it could, in my family, it was like, oh, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It's too sad to talk about. My philosophy, it's a life. It's an exciting life that we can talk about. Like, what did he do in those 24 years as opposed to... How did he die, or why did he die? What was your great? So you you went to Vietnam more than twice, once, twice yeah. indeed, and um, you you had a heap of letters, uh, yeah. which was must have been not not only emotional and maybe a little difficult to to go through, but wearing a cold documentarian's hat on, very useful. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about that and how useful they were to you. Yeah, I have 200 letters from Jimmy dating from 1965 to 1972. Letters primarily that he wrote to my parents, but there's also some letters he wrote to his friends. Mm-hmm. Um, the tone is very different. He He's a lot more candid with his friends about, you know, his illicit activities. And he quoted <laughs> being interested in hedonistic pleasures. And to my parents, it was much more, uh, you know, much much more buttoned up, but but I was able to piece together a story yeah. of his life. And Ryan had this question for Peter. The, the big question I think most people listening will be saying, why did your brother get him not only go to the Vietnam War, but mm-hmm. come home mm-hmm. and say, nah, not so much, mm-hmm. and go back into the cauldron mm-hmm. voluntarily? Mm-hmm. Have you answered that question? Yeah, I mean, I think so, and I and I and I probably can't reveal it on this. Uh, in, in this conversation, because that's why people have to come watch the yeah, documentary. That's the but, twist, yeah. but I will say that in one of his letters, he said, I can't stand the United States. He said it in capital letters. You know, he was not happy with where the country was. And he saw, ironically, a certain freedom in Vietnam um, that that he couldn't find in the United States. Even the freedom to be a gay man? Uh, possibly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that some of those. Some some countries were sort of and maybe still are in a little bit of a kind of a don't ask, don't tell situation like where, you know, things are tolerated or people look the other way. Yeah. Whereas like in, you know, the United States at, at its core was founded by Puritans. And so there's obviously a strong this, streak, isn't it? Yes, it's a strong streak. Um, so it's a puritanical thing. And that was, yeah. you know, pretty bad in the 50s for sure. But I thought, OK, let's just go down as a sidebar yes. for a moment, Peter, uh, that. The puritanical thing fascinates me because yeah. uh, I just read a book about that with uh, the Robert Harris book, uh, The Act of Oblivion, which deals a lot about the the the, the puritanical beginnings of, of America as we know it in those beginnings. And then you have the counterculture you just tried to describe mm. there and we're thinking Woodstock yeah. and free love and yeah. a tolerance, if you will, that, that, rock and that, roll. that, that hadn't post-Nixon sort yeah. of uh, stuff. Well, actually, it was just pre, but I know you know what I'm talking about, yeah. rock and roll, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, liberation, if you like. And then in the last 
eight years back. back yeah. Like tiptoeing backwards yeah. into that puritanical thing where no, you can't do that. No, you shouldn't do that. No, mm-hmm. you, isn't it extraordinary? The, it, it's quite, I didn't realize how cyclical this yeah. Was. Well, that's the joy of documentaries also is that sometimes they bring out things from the past that are also relevant to nowadays. You know, when when I first started showing this film to people, one person told me, oh, I don't think young people are going to be interested in this. And it turns out they were totally wrong. Young people love this film. And we, we try to contextualize history in it and explain the Vietnam War and explain where gay rights were at the time so that young people can kind of understand it who didn't live through that period. Peter McDowell talking about his documentary Jimmy in Saigon from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And back to Liveline and foster parent Catherine called Joe. Well I just I was listening to the show over the last couple of days and just I'm a foster parent myself. I've been doing it for about 14 years and we've had 14 children of all age groups over the 14 years. And like that, I just I just gave a few examples of different children that we have had here over the years. And one in particular that we've had the longest, he's, he's here okay. about 12 years and he has he has issues. He has yeah. problems and he has um, sort of mild learning difficulties and he would have ADHD and things like that. And I just was given an example of things that yeah. have happened while he has been in our home. Okay. Um, like pulling a radiator off the wall and flooding the house. Um, He's kicked a large picture frame with 10 pictures in it off the sitting room wall doing handstands and broke all the glass down on top of himself. And he's pulled uh, curtain poles off the walls, just constantly swinging out the curtains and pulled down the poles and everything on top of himself. And he jumped on his bed and has gone through his bed three times and broke his bed in smithereens. And that's just the example. Now, yeah. don't get me wrong. We are mad about this chap. There's not a bad yeah. bone in his body. Yeah, well He's said. just hyper. They are the and, most vulnerable in our society. Yeah, but and it's just, I don't think people realise the, the, well, the wear and tear on your car, the wear and tear on your house, mm-hmm. the wear and tear on your relationship. Like, we had another uh, baby that came with, um, addicted to heroin it was born addicted oh, okay. to heroin yeah. and we were minding that to help out there was another couple minding the baby and they were struggling okay. so we used to take the baby for one long weekend well every done. month to well give done. them a break and like we would walk the floor this baby never slept and rarely stopped crying yeah. and we would walk the floor it would arrive at 12 o'clock on a Friday until 12 o'clock on the Monday and we would walk the floor between us here for the whole weekend and you didn't go outside the door because you couldn't you couldn't go anywhere with the child because it would constantly cry yeah. and want to be rocked and wheeled and and just for the, the stress on a relationship as well apart yeah. from any of the financial stress and everything the, the stress on a relationship and then like people say the, the biggest insult you can get then is for someone to turn around and say that you're doing it for the money that's the most horrific insult mm. I feel. You know, like, and, and even, now I've stopped at the moment. We've kept the, the little lad that's here that we have the, lo- the longest because he's here so long and everything we wouldn't dream of parting with him. But I've actually stopped, other than him, I've stopped taking foster children now because my nerves are gone between, like this little lad nearly got killed on me. He walked out in front of a car. Yeah. We had another teenager here a few years ago who went missing. 
we she was only here a fortnight when she went missing. We went to the guards and she was gone. She was only 14 years old and she was gone. And we went into the guards and the guards were, my husband actually went in. I stayed here in case she came back. And the guards were all concerned and everything until about 10 or 15 minutes into the conversation, he happened to mention that she was a foster child. And the guard put down his pen and looked down and said, more or less laughed and said, you know, you may go on home. He said, that's what they do. She'll be back whenever she's ready. And we were basically told to go home. And, and it was week, the weekend. She went missing over Friday evening. There was no social workers, no helpline. We walked the length and breadth of the town. My husband drove the length and breadth of the country, ringing and ringing and ringing. I walked the floor here. I never slept a wink. I had visions of how I was going to tell this girl's mother that she was gone or that somebody had kidnapped her. Or I never ate and I never slept the whole weekend. Your nerves would be gone. I had another teenager here another time and she was after having a few drinks and Mm. I don't know what, we had the baby, the actual heroin baby here the same weekend and I was Mm -hmm. awake with the baby. Thank God I was awake with the baby because the teenager came here, got into bed and only for I heard this gargling sound, a very unusual sound yeah. and something. I was with the baby and I was dreading the thoughts getting out of bed. I was with the baby and I was trying to pace by the baby and trying to just rest. But something wouldn't let me rest. I said, what is that noise? And I got up and the teenager was literally choking on their own vomit. <gasps> unconscious choking on their own yeah. vomit. So the responsibility that you're taking on if anything happens to anybody else's children do you know what I mean? It's it, it's so wearing on your nerves, on your health, on your relationship. No money would pay you yeah. for yeah. what you take on. That's Catherine on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, the possible links between pesticide use and Parkinson's disease. A support group for people with Parkinson's disease in Cork has teamed up with academics in UCC to explore the possible links between pesticide use and Parkinson's. The study came about when the support group noticed a larger number of people from a farming background contacting them for support. And in some cases, fathers and sons were presenting with Parkinson's disease. Well, Brian O'Connell has this story for us and met both the support group and the academics engaged in the research. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Claire. This is a unique research piece of research in an Irish context. It is. I mean, quite fascinating and important work, as you can imagine. It is unique in that we haven't had a study like this looking at the possible links between pesticide use and Parkinson's disease in the farming community in Ireland. But there has been work done elsewhere. For example, I was looking at studies from the wine growing region of France. There was a noticeable spike in Parkinson's cases and also in the Netherlands and the flower growing regions there has been significant peer reviewed work undertaken there too obviously there are regions where pesticide use uh, would have been taken place in the past. There have been court cases as well around this in the US for example one multinational has set aside almost $190 million to settle legal cases filed by farmers. It's expected that figure could rise significantly there's a series of advertisements on television in the US encouraging farmers who feel they may have been exposed to certain products to file legal claims. And here in Ireland the support group that you met had concerns Brian? 
crime. Absolutely. And I met some of those living with Parkinson's who believe they may have been exposed to pesticide use and then the possible links exist between that exposure and then developing the disease at a later stage. But let's begin with Tony Wilkinson, who's chair of the Cork Parkinson's Association. Tony told me when they began to notice a pattern, they wanted to investigate this further. When I looked at our membership, I realised that a large proportion of the membership was in the farming community and um, made me realise that there was something not right here. And then what really threw it for me was the fact that there was a case of a father and son in the farming community. And that surprised me. But then again, when I looked further into it, within our Cork area, there are four father-sons in farming with Parkinson's. And that's when I started talking with the Parkinson's Disease Research Cluster at UCC. So you had said to them, look, we're beginning to see a pattern here, or we are seeing a pattern here. Yep. Can you help us try and figure it out? Yes. Um, again, knowing Professor Aideen Sullivan and uh, Professor Suzanne Timmons spoke to them and said, look, we've got funding. Could you look into this for us? So what's your suspicion? Well, my suspicion is that the pesticides and the herbicides, now, they are, uh, there is a need for them. But I think what it is, it's the lack of awareness of people's personal protection and also in the delivery of the actual herbicides and pesticides. And that, I think, is where things need to be looked at. Well, that's Tony there, and Brian met with Ivan, who has Parkinson's. I met with Ivan O'Regan. Ivan worked for a time when he was younger around pesticides. He's 42. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's, aged just 31. Some days he was unable to walk until he had a life-changing operation, deep brain stimulation recently, where uh, it's essentially a mild electric current is, develop- is delivered into the brain, and this helps treat movement disorders associated with Parkinson's. This is some of Ivan's experience. So when I was a teenager, I worked in a setting where I was able to, where I was exposed to pesticides. And uh, I worked, um, there was one particular day where I came home and my T-shirt was soaked in pesticides. And they always remember, my, my mother always remembers that. And they're, they're convinced that that was a part of the, the, my, the reason why I got Parkinson's. PPE is one of the biggest things now. Not people, I, even myself, when I, I remember not even wearing I don't even remember where I was wearing a mask or anything um, because I suppose even though you did work for a period in your life around pesticides we're not saying conclusively that's no. why you have Parkinson's no it's not no, no. I'm sure there's other environmental factors that could possibly go into it or, um, but there are a lot of pointers there I suppose that require yeah. further investigation aren't absolutely there? yeah Brian O'Connell from today with Claire Byrne And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.